you can be right and still be a moron. I think that people learn the wrong lessons sometimes. And for me, the most powerful word in investing is probably. If you hold all asset classes, probably some of them are going to do well. That's behavioral finance expert Dr. Daniel Crosby, author of The Laws of Wealth. He's our guest today on Your Money, Your Wealth. Is there forgetfulness in today's market? Can you invest in LGBT rights and gender equality? Are you a fearful moron when it comes to investing? Dr. Crosby answers these questions and more. Also coming up, Joe and Big Al consider the biggest tax cut ever. Seven common investor mistakes, Rick Edelman's social security solution, and your 401k, Roth IRA, and social security questions. Now, two guys who are probably not morons at all, Joe Anderson, CFP, and Big Al Clopine, CPA. First things first, Al. But you just read that um, our president is going to come out with some new tax reform coming up here in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, he says um, he's going to announce his tax package, which will be bigger than any tax cut ever, in quotes. And, uh, you know, we'll have to see. It's uh, This sort of coincides with the 100-day mark. Remember how much he said that I'm going to do a lot in 100 days? And... uh, so then I, I actually saw an article that said uh, he thinks the 100-day mark idea is a dumb concept. But he, that was part of his campaign promises. But anyway, I'm not here to be political. But, but uh, well, a lot of the tax cut reform had to deal with revamping the health care system. And, and that didn't happen, that didn't at least happen. so far. Right. Yeah, there's still well, well, there's still time, right? There's, yeah, and so been in office and so. Months. By the way, just in case you haven't really been paying attention, that's that's what was one of Trump's big campaign promises was to reduce tax rates, not only for individuals but corporations. And uh, and so the idea here, I mean, when you look at the experts, they kind of say, well, wait a minute, if we do all these tax cuts, we're going to go more in in debt, more bigger deficits, you know, larger national debt, and so we'll have to see. But on the other side, it's going to create more revenue, and that's with, right. There's more revenue. Revenue, even with lower rates, you're going to be taxed more revenue. So that's that's right, and that's what tax. that's what Treasury Steve uh, Munchen, Munchen, Munchen. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you're not going to try that. <laughs> anyway, um, he says that um, some of the lowering of the tax rates is going to be offset by less deductions because Trump wants to do a capped itemized deductions and and simpler taxes. I don't know how simpler taxes makes. Uh, helps pay for the taxes. But uh, I guess the bigger function, though, is what what's called dynamic scoring. So, Joe, this is when um, you kind of build in that there's going to be more growth because there's lower taxes, and, and therefore that will help pay for it, just what you said. So maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't. It's a it's a hard thing to predict with certainty, right. and, I, and I know that was part of Reagan's plans in the 80s, and it didn't quite work out like he had hoped. But, but that's the idea. Is Well, that, sure. I mean, let's say that um, an individual that's in the 39.6% tax rate, plus state here of California where you and I live. Um, so that's another, call it 10. Yes. Could be higher. Right. right? So you're, you're looking at a 50% rate. That's, that's right. And so yeah. if that goes down, that means there's excess cash flow for that individual. And then hopefully that individual will purchase more goods and services. And then right. if they buy more goods and services, then that increases... You know the bottom line for those businesses because there's more sales. That's absolutely right. Or businesses will have more cash flow, so they can invest more in the future, buy more equipment, hire more people, and uh, and so the whole the, and that's the theory behind this. And and t- obviously that's true. It's just how much it's true, yeah, right? You know, we're not economists, and I'm, I'm not even going to predict that. But there's no question lower taxes is going to help the economy. Well, remember a few years ago, 
Um, right after the Great Recession, we had a little bit of relief in our payroll tax. Right. Right. That's right. And so that was anticipation of you know more spending. Right. But people saved it. Right. They did because they hadn't saved in a while. Right. And they and got their at, they know, got their butts kicked with, the, with all the, the debt they had. Right. So they're going. You know what? We're going to do this a little differently this time. And and so I kind of understand that thinking. But anyway, I mean, it's uh, we'll have to see that. So the danger, of course, I mean, to state the obvious, is is if the economy doesn't grow enough or ta- extra tax revenue grow enough to cover the tax cuts, then we're just going to add to our national debt, which is already approaching $20 trillion. And you've got to be careful, too. And I, I don't care what side of the aisle that you're sitting in, is that there's always been political rhetoric when it comes to tax. How long have you been a CPA? Yeah, well, I, I think the early, uh, early 80s is when I became a CPA. Jeez. Wow. <laughs> that was... I can't believe at you're least, still... At least, you're upright. At least you were born. <laughs> <laughs> so, but right for all those years, there's been talk about you know significantly changing the tax code. Oh, right? sure, and and we did have a pretty big change during. I I think I became a, officially a CPA in 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 1984, and it was 1986 Six, that right, the Tax Reagan. Reform Act of Ronald Reagan that came into play, and that changed a lot of things. In fact, that's arguably the last major tax reform we've had. Right. So there's got to be give and take with anything. And so if I'm saying I'm going to lower tax rates, it'd be great if they didn't change anything else, that we still had our deductions, such as our charitable deduction, mortgage deduction. Here in the state of California, we can write off state taxes, and we're in a very high tax, um, state tax state. Right. And so those... You know, help with the overall taxation of our money. But then there's other things that could happen. I read this article. There's a couple of different articles that I read in regards to retirement plans, since, you know, a lot of our topics on the show is about retirement. And so here's the headline it was like the GOP contemplating shifting to all Roth 401k system. And I don't think this author really understood what they were talking about because. I read it. So this individual is saying, all right, well, we're going to get rid of the tax deduction um, in regards to putting money into your 401k plan. So if you have a Roth 401k, for those of you that have listened to the show, you know, we're big fans of Roth and it's an after tax uh, contribution. So it's, you've already paid tax on those dollars. Then you put it into a retirement planning um, savings plan, and all of that money grows 100% tax-free. So you, you forego the du- deduction today, and then all of the growth and earnings of whatever investment that you choose, you don't pay taxes on it when you take the distributions. The traditional plans today is that you get that tax deduction going in, it grows tax-deferred, but then when you pull the money out, then that's when you owe ordinary income tax on those dollars, plus state tax. So... The article was like, well, all Roth accounts. And I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. Right? <laughs> that would be, wouldn't it? Because if you actually do the math, right, long term, right, all of that money compounding tax free is really good for us, yes. the individual. Not so great for the government 20 years from now, 30 years from now. It's really good for them today. Sure, because they would get more tax revenue today. But talk about a classic kick, kicking the can down the road. That would be that. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So then, there, so there's uproar. It's like, well, well, wait a minute. That would that would devastate, you know, people saving into retirement plans. And I'm, I kept re- reading this article. I'm like, well, what is this guy th- talking about? It's like, I, I think that would encourage more. I, I don't know. I would, I would not change my savings if it's all Roth. If it's all Roth, sure. 
right? And so just to give you an idea, let me see. Of course, I don't have these numbers in front of me. Um, but it's billions of dollars that would save. So the, Latin, the, the here's the latest figures from the Joint Committee of Taxation showed the tax-exempt status of defined contribution plans would result in $584 billion in foregone uh, tax revenue. So the government is saying because of these pre-tax contributions that people are making into retirement accounts, it costs the government about $584 billion. That's between 2016 and 2020. And the exemption of uh, traditional IRA contributions cost about $85.8 billion, call it $86 billion. So combined the teal, you're at about $650 billion. Got it. Okay. So they're saying, all right, no more tax deduction, but it's not going to be all Roth. It couldn't be. Here's what will probably happen if this goes through. It's going to be an after-tax contribution that grows tax-deferred, but then you're going to have to pay taxes on the growth of that overall, yeah, o- overall account. I, that's what I would suggest. Be- because the other article that I read that I, that I don't have that I thought I printed out since our crack research team, and we're really prepared for the show every week, yeah, we are. is that it, then all contributions would have basis. And yeah. you and I talked about that a few weeks ago. It's like, all right, so any contribution that you make have basis. So that what that means is just after tax, so you're not double taxed on the contributions that you make, but then you're going to be taxed ordinary income on all the growth. And we have those plans right now. So let's say with some employers, if you have after-tax contributions, or you could put up to the $18,000 or $24,000 if you're over 50, and then some plans allow even more additional contributions, up to about $52,000, but those are after-tax contributions. But here's the funny thing with that as well. With those after-tax contributions that you make, the law states today that you can take those after-tax contributions, and guess what? You can convert those into a Roth IRA and not pay any tax. Right. So where I'm going with all of this is then what the heck is going to happen to the Roth if it's all, why would anyone go after tax to grow tax deferred and pay tax on it versus going after tax and then have it grow 100% tax free? Right. Yeah. No one would do that after, right? Everyone would go Roth. Well, I think your first statement is right. The person that wrote that article really didn't understand how Roth works. Well, I think most of these people that write articles don't understand. I don't know. He's a journalist. Right. Not necessarily a, a CPA or someone sure. that's, that's living and breathing this thing. Every right. Day. Right. So just stay tuned. You know, stay tuned. We will, um, I guess next week or in the next couple of weeks, we might get a little bit better insight on what those current administration yeah. is thinking about. Supposedly this coming week, Joe. So we'll see. Yeah. I'm not holding my breath. Right. But um, we'll, we'll get a little hint. Maybe. Right, the the most massive tax cut ever. All right. Well, hey, I'm all for. I mean, you and I have talked about mitigating, eliminating tax f- for years. We have, and we're all for that. All for that. But let's just kind of put things in perspective there too. Right? Yeah, we got to be realistic because we still need a government to fund militaries and infrastructure and social security and things like that. Investor optimism seems high right now, but who knows what's ahead? Larry Swedro's book, Playing the Winner's Game, Think, Act, and Invest Like Warren Buffett, offers bedrock investing principles that can help you profit in today's shaky markets. And right now, it's available for free to Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get your free copy. Learn how to think like Warren Buffett and build a well-designed portfolio based on solid evidence and your highest interests. Playing the Winner's Game by Larry Swedro with a foreword by Joe Anderson CFP and Big Al Clopine CPA. Click special offer at yourmoneyyourwealth.com to get your free copy. Alan, it's that time of the show. Yes, where we have a guest who is uh, 
way more intelligent than we are. Way, <laughs> way more intelligent than e- us. Definitely easy to say this time. Yes, we have Dr. Daniel Crosby on the line. He's been on the show once before. And I was talking about this gentleman a few weeks ago on our show. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to see if I can bribe him. Yes. To come back on. And how did you get him back on? I have no idea. Let's ask him. <laughs> Daniel, welcome to the show, my friend. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for those gold bars. Yeah, uh, yes. You got it. <laughs> That's my... what I thought it was. So they okay. shipped. They yeah. shipped on time perfectly. Right. They got here yesterday or I wouldn't have picked up the phone. <laughs> just just in time. Look at that, right? Oh, well, Daniel, how's your book doing? The Laws of Wealth. We talked about, I don't know, maybe six, eight months ago when the book was just coming out. How's everything going? Okay, it was named the best investment book of 2016 by the Axiom Business Book Awards, and it's uh, now in the process of being translated into Chinese and Vietnamese. So nothing but good news since we last spoke. Wow. That's amazing. So you might make about eight bucks then. <laughs> yeah. I won't even tell you what my advance was for the Vietnamese edition. Yeah. It says, how, how about this? Oh, I learned that today. We're going to go out and get some Vietnamese food tonight, and it'll almost cover dinner for my family. <laughs> very good. That's very exciting. Oh, well, well I, want, I want to talk a, a, a few different things. But right now, uh, the markets are doing well. And I think you, when it comes to behavioral finance, I'm, I'm a huge fan of this study. And I, I think there, there could be a little bit of overconfidence. Would you say that there's some egos kind of out there thinking that, um, you know, that this market is going to continue to rise and that they might be taking on a little bit more risk than, than they should? Or what, what's your thoughts? Well, what, what's so interesting about this market is it's um, by, by almost any sort of valuation-based metric, it's extremely high, right? Right. Um, and yet there's not been what I would characterize as sort of the uh, the, the puffed out chest and the ego and the overconfidence uh, that, that's been sort of the hallmark of other times when the markets become this elevated. So as a student of the markets, it's kind of interesting for me. As an investor, it's kind of terrifying for me. Uh, but uh, it's it's an interesting thing to, to see because I don't think that people are especially optimistic. And, and yet here we are. Uh, with valuations where they are. So it's sort of an interesting thing. I, I almost see it more as complacence uh, than, than overconfidence, sort of forgetfulness almost. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. That's why he's a doctor, Al. <laughs> <laughs> and we are not. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I listened to a podcast, and Al and I, um, and you're on it, and I forgive me, I forget which one, because I think you're on every single one. Um, you're a busy guy, man, I'm telling you. Uh, but, God, I was so intrigued. Al and I were talking about um, you know, individuals that have individual stocks. And we always talk about there's no place for emotion in investing, that you got to you know, put your emotions to the side because that only gets you in trouble. When markets go up, we get overconfident, and then we buy, and then when markets go down, we get fearful. But when someone is absolutely emotional, emotionally attached to a certain individual stock, it's very difficult to have any type of intelligent conversation with that individual about diversification. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I I don't know if this is your next question, but let me try and jump and anticipate it. You know, one of the things that I try and do is almost bring up sort of a, a theoretical say hey you know what would you what would you tell your your friend to do you know if someone came to you and had 50% of their wealth uh, you know either in a company that has been good to them as an employer or you know something that aunt betsy gave you and that you can't bear to part with what would you tell them to do and sort of get them to speak to the other side of that equation 
uh, because people in love and in money, I feel like people have lots of great advice until it comes to their own lives. So, um, you know, you have great, great dating advice for your friends, but you continue to make poor decisions there, perhaps. And the same thing can be said of money for sure. Right. That's why I'm still single. Thanks for bringing that up. <laughs> that was directly, <laughs> that was a heat seeking missile meant for you. Yes. You it's got a, me. A direct, direct target there. But carrying on with this emotional tie, um, let's say that you have an investment that was diversified that you have more um, emotion towards. Let's say that this exchange-traded fund or mutual fund were all companies that were going to cure homelessness or you know, f- feed you know, or cure hunger. You would be less likely to sell that because by and, whole, by and large, if you have a globally diversified portfolio and you keep that portfolio intact by rebalancing, tax managing it, you're probably going to do a little bit better than someone that's trying to time the markets, be getting in and out of the overall markets. But I, I found it fascinating is that, man, if, if there was such an investment that people were truly emotionally tied to, to keep them in the market, I think that's something pretty interesting to talk about. Because if I have a, a Russell 2000 index fund, I don't know who Russell is, right? I'm going to sell Russell if, if, if Russell's treat me bad. And if Russell's treat me good, well, then I might buy more of them. So if it, there was a concept that maybe I totally misunderstood what you were talking about, but having you know, more of an emotional tie towards these specific investments. Yeah, that was a, that was from an article I wrote for the Green Money Journal, and I absolutely agree. You know, I was speaking there about socially responsible or values-based investing, where, like you mentioned, uh, the investments are are sound investments. They're well diversified. They're uh, you know they're they're as they should be but they also have sort of a social or values-based component to them. Uh, so we have everything from, you know, sort of impacting developing countries uh, to funds that overweight companies that uh, give equal rights to LGBT folks to uh, overweight companies that have equal representation of men and women on boards. So all kinds of, you know, uh, any sort of flavor of value you have, you could, you could find an investment alternative for it. And I do believe that there's a strong uh, behavioral benefit to be had by making things a little bit more personal. Uh, because frankly, most people look at the stock market a little bit like a video game and not like owning shares is actually partial ownership in a company. We just think about it as this thing that sort of pings up and down and we can get a little bit removed from that equation. So I think taking this values-based approach where we think a little bit more deeply about, hey, these are real companies that are out there in the world uh, doing good and doing, uh, do, doing good and doing bad. And as we start to be a little bit more thoughtful about that, I think we get more connected to that process and make better decisions, uh, just as you've suggested. You know, I think we just need to do a better job of maybe un- helping educate individuals of actually what they are owning you know, depending on what their portfolio looks like. Because, for instance, let's say I have $2 million in Apple, right? And I bought that Apple stock for $100,000, right? So I have a very strong opinion about Apple, and I'm emotionally attached to it. And I don't care what you're going to say, how many statistics that you're going to show me, or what type of, you know, angles that you're going to take at me. I might listen to you and nod, shake my head, but I'm going to be like, there is no way in hell I'm going to sell this stock. If people have that same type of conviction towards a globally diversified portfolio, I think a lot more people would have a lot more money. Yeah, and I I agree with you. And I think that it goes back to sort of making it emotional in a good way. 
you know, I believe that all these things that we're prone to, I think you can kind of turn them on their head. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but I, um, I cited a study in the book where people who were shown a picture of their children before they made an investment decision uh, saved over 200% as much money as a control group. So again, you're bringing emotion in, uh, but you're sort of bringing it in in the opposite way. Instead of a greedy or fearful emotion, you're saying, okay, uh, you're going to make a decision here in a moment. But before you do that, I want you to think about what matters most to you uh, and act accordingly. So I think all of these things that we talk about have a, have a flip side. And I think, uh, you know, great, great planners like you guys are learning to use those things to the benefit of their clients. Do you play the market like a video game or are your investments in line with your values? Do you have a plan to achieve your retirement goals? Visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com to sign up for your free financial assessment. There are so many things to think about. Income, risk, asset allocation, inflation, taxes, social security, health care, Medicare, long-term care. The list goes on and on. Talk to a professional. Sign up for a free two-meeting assessment with a certified financial planner at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. We're talking to Dr. Daniel Crosby. Well, you uncovered, what, over a hundred different behavioral issues that we have with money. Let's talk a little bit more. Let's kind of bring it back to your book because I love your book. I'm a huge fan of your book. I'm a huge fan of your work. And what are some of the best or or, or studies, you know, that that when you were researching found it, I guess, the most humorous or, or think that could bring the most value to our listeners? So I, I ran across, you know, just off the top of my head, I'm, I'm writing a new book because I have a, just a sickness. I mean, there's no other way, there's no other way to describe it. I just love doing hard things that pay me nothing. So I'm writing a new book and it was a, it was talking about research that had been done with rats where they basically, if you think back to your psych 100 class about Pavlov, they train these rats to be scared of a stimulus, like scared of a chime or a bell. And then they extinguish that fear, right? They, they cease to pair it with the stimulus, so the uh, rats unlearn that fear. And then what they did is they severed the corpus callosum, the, the, the thing that connects the two hemispheres of the brain, and, and uh, did the chime again. And the rats were just as scared as the very first time. So basically what we're learning about the human brain um, is that fear is basically uh, unable to be done away with. Fear exists in your head uh, in a physical place that can basically never be eradicated. And so this is why in Chapter 2 of of The Laws of Wealth, I talk about you cannot do this alone. Um, Everybody thinks that they're going to do the right thing when the the time comes. But these fears are so deep-seated in us um, that it's just very tough without someone there to hold your hand someone to keep you from making that wrong choice uh, in the form of an advisor. And so I thought that was just fascinating about how fear is sort of intransigent and how it just lives in our bodies in a very physical way. Uh, And then I went on to tie that to some of people's early investing experiences. I think that millennials um, and other people who started investing uh, you know, during the, the Great Recession, uh, that's going to stick with them forever. You don't, you don't shake that. And the evidence is all showing that young people are not saving enough, not putting enough away, uh, and are taking less risk than, than older generations. And so I think that fear is very much 
uh, even physically in the minds of young people and uh, hoping that we can turn things around a little bit. Would you think that's acreing then? Um, if, if they look at, all right, well, here, this was my experience within the overall markets was 2008, where I saw my parents lose you know, their home or lost half their retirement savings. And so they're just kind of anchoring back on that and they're not taking the right steps for their own financial future. Exactly. Yeah. There's, so there's a form of anchoring called the irrational primacy effect, where we, we remember things that happen early in a sequence better than things that happen in the middle. So your early investing experiences, you anchor to them absolutely, and they become very, very formative uh, about the way that you think about things. You know, my dad, uh, my dad is a financial advisor. He's been at it about 35 years. And so he's a big fan of bonds because they've done nothing but go up, you know, over his lifetime. He's very anchored uh, to this opinion of bonds uh, that is, of course, like all of us, very much a a product of his early experiences. And so I think that that folks need to be market historians. They need to read excellent books like mine to get a a sense of, of history and a sense of perspective and not just be so anchored to those early experiences. Well, I think even with everyday experiences, we have that. Or you, know, you, you buy a stock at $50 a share, and then that stock drops to you know, 25 uh, or even 5 You know, People will not sell that stock until it gets back to that 50 mark. You know? um, or if it goes up to 100 they're like, ooh, no, it's, maybe it's too high. They anchor it at the price that they purchased it, which makes you know, very little sense. Yeah, I mean, you, you see that with homes a lot, too. You know, if uh, the, the grandma next door bought her home for $250,000, you know, 30, 30 or 40 years ago, and now it's worth whatever, uh, 800 and you bought yours, you know, a year ago for, for 850 and now it's worth 800 um, you know, if you two have identical homes and get identical offers, one of you is going to sell and one of you is not, um, because you've anchored to that original price, irrespective of what it's worth today. It's a big problem. Yeah, and I, I think sometimes uh, it's probably one of the worst things that can happen to you right out the gate is you you make a lucky investment, right? And then you have this feeling that, oh, I can just keep doing this over and over again. I think sometimes when people make a poor investment off right off the bat, then they start to learn more about diversification might be a little bit better, might be a more predictable way to go. Absolutely. I mean, there's a line that gets a uh, that gets thrown back at me a lot from the book that says you can you can be right and still be a moron. And <laughs> um, I think that people learn the, the wrong lessons sometimes. And for me, uh, being a good investor is uh, the most powerful word in investing. It's probably um, you know that's why we diversify because we don't know for sure. But if you hold all asset classes, probably some of them are going to do well. Uh, and people who have early successes doing the wrong things don't learn probably. They learn, oh, I'm going to take a very specific action, a very concentrated action, and I'm going to be richly rewarded for that, uh, which, you know, given enough iterations, doesn't always go your way. Uh, whereas someone like Vegas, you know, Las Vegas keeps all those pretty lights on by just tilting probably in their favor a tiny bit. Uh, and, and investors would be wise to learn a similar lesson. Hey, with your investment firm, um, you're basically taking you know, all of your study when it comes to behavioral finance in, in bringing that to an investment front. Uh, share with me a little bit about the philosophy and, and kind of how the, the origination of your firm and, and um, you know, more details on that. Yeah, so basically what I tried to do um, is create a money management system that's robust uh, as robust as possible to to human error, and so that that to me has sort of four pillars. 
Uh, one of them is consistency. So it's rule-based. It's all quantitative. It's all rule-based. Uh, I don't leave it to my own discretion because I know that I'm not special. Like I'm just as dumb and greedy and fearful as the next person. And so that's one way that we sort of weed out bias. Uh, the next, I call it my four C's. So the first C is consistency, that rules-based. Uh, the second C is clarity, um, which is just taking a simple approach. You know, I talk in the book about how the irony of a complex, dynamic system like the stock market is the only way that you can hope to sort of crack it is paradoxically by a, a simple strategy. You know, really complicated, ever-changing things you can't you can't hit with a lot of precision because they're complicated and never changing. So you just have to, again, tilt some rules in your favor. So clarity for me is operating by just a small handful of rules uh, with respect to, you know, high quality stocks, inexpensive stocks, stocks that have a catalyst. And beyond that, I say, look, there's just a lot of luck involved and I'm going to tilt probability in my favor uh, and hope that good things happen. Uh, the third C is conviction. Um, we try and do what we call Goldilocks diversification, which is uh, straddling the line between uh, being diversified enough to um, nearly eliminate single stock risk without being so diversified that you just own the whole, uh, you know, own the whole market. Uh, owning the whole market is a, a lovely way to invest. You know, the passive investing is a very, uh, very smart and admirable way to invest, but there are lots of very cheap alternatives to do that. So we believe that if you are going to be a passive investor, you should be a passive investor and get it for super cheap. Um, and if you're going to work with a, a manager like us, you should uh, look for someone who's going to have a little conviction and be different than the benchmark. And then finally, the final C is courageousness. Uh, you know, one of the chapters in the book uh, talks about how excess is never permanent. And so one of the things that we automate is the process of doing exactly what feels the most uncomfortable. Uh, so at times when the market's uh, steeply valued, uh, we tend to take some risk off the table. And at times when the market uh, is in the dumps, we tend to uh, tend to put a little risk on. So we call that courageousness. So basically, all you're doing is a uh, rules-based approach to buying a diversified but not too diversified uh, basket of stocks uh, and trying to hold them in good times and bad. Just simple, simple stuff, but... Uh, uh, take, takes takes a lot of study to make it that simple. But I think when you're talking about overly diversified, I think a lot of people are overly diversified. Uh, they, they, they might have 10, 15 different mutual funds. And Al and I got in a fight before what you got on the air about looking at passively funds versus active and things like that. But it's all about the diversification of what, how you're building and constructing that overall portfolio. And you might have 10 different mutual funds, and they all might be passively invested. But if they're all the same stocks, it's a redundant portfolio. It's not necessarily going to capture you know, any higher expected returns um, than you think you might be doing by having 10 different funds. Yeah, you, you point out a way that I think people get it, get it wrong a lot. They go, oh, well, I have, you know, like you said, 10 different large cap. Uh, 10 different large cap equity mutual funds. So I'm diversified. Well, you're diversified among large cap equities. Yes. But you know, where's your exposure to real estate and fixed income and, you know, small cap value and all these other things. And so, yeah, like I think a lot of people, um, you, you need diversification within um, and among asset classes. And I think that that's where a lot of people fall down. And I think a lot of advisors don't do a great job is, is getting people into, uh, you know, 
five or six different asset classes and not just sticking with lots of uh, large cap equity mutual funds because you're right you could own uh, you could own ten different mutual funds and and have very little diversification in fact we're talking to Daniel Crosby dr. Daniel Crosby it's uh, awesome to talk to you again where can people uh, get more information from you they can follow me on Twitter where I say awkward things and post pictures of my kids. That's at Daniel Crosby, or they can go to my professional site, uh, www.nocturne with an E, nocturnecapital.com. Time now for Big Al's List. Every week, Big Al Clopine scours the media to find the best tips, do's and don'ts, mistakes, myths, and advice to improve your overall financial picture. In handy bullet point format. Today's list is from Investopedia. Now, these are seven common investor mistakes. And uh, the first one, and th- this happens all the time, and the, f- the first one is... People don't have a plan. In other words, they don't know where they're going. And as the old saying goes, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Sure. Right? And how often do we see this? People just, they haven't sat down. I mean, what's your goal? Is it save $100,000 for kids' college or a million or two for your own retirement? Have you done that calculation? Have you figured out how you're going to get there? How long it's going to take to get there? If you do that, I mean, if people did that, you know how much more money people would actually have? Yeah, because they would have a roadmap. It's like, okay, all right. And and the, the way that you go about this is you have the goal and then you start chipping away at it. If you and here's right. what happens is people go through their whole working life without a goal and then they retire and they go, man, I wish I, I would have saved. I'm in trouble. I, I wish I would have done this 10, 20, 30 years ago. Everyone has some sort of plan in their head. Right. But is that plan really going to get you to where you need to be? Right. You know what I mean? You're driving from San Diego to New York and you're just going, ah, well, I, gotta, I know I have to head east and a little bit north. How efficient is that, right? You've got to plan a little bit more. And here's, I think, why some people don't necessarily want to go through that process is that they'll find out, hey, yes, I, I know I'm a little bit behind. You know what I mean? And yeah, they'd like, rather not know. It's kind of like not going to the doctor. Right, like, I might find out I'm not doing that well. Right. I'd rather not know. <laughs> <laughs> rather just kind of just, just the status quo is okay. Yeah, right. Because it might say, yeah, you got to save all this money. It's like, well, I can't save. Well, no, you just save what you can. Let's say you got to save 5000 bucks a month, something like that. Right. And you can afford $300 a month. Well, you know that you got to get to a certain level. Right. So you start with 300 And then maybe six months later, then you go to four. 500. Maybe then you get to 1,000. And then you get to 1,200. Then you get to 50. Whatever the numbers are, right? I'm just making things up. Right. But if that number seems too large, it's you don't have to hit that number right away that's, if you just do something. That's you know right. what I mean? And, and of course, the younger you are, the better. But sometimes we'll talk to people that 63-year-old that comes in with nothing, right? What Then then what do you do? Right. And it's, and it's well, all right, well, let's let's take a look at this and you figure out how much can you save and maybe work over the next seven years to age 70, okay? And maybe you can work up to $100,000 of savings in that seven years. And first of all, that's better than nothing. It's also better than average, by the way. You're going to take your Social Security at seven. So it'll be the highest benefit. And maybe have a strategy to work part-time in retirement. Right. You know, or maybe you downsize your home and move to a cheaper area. There's, But the thing is, if you don't do anything, then you get to 70, and, and then what? Right. Or, or worse yet, you retire at 67 because you think that's when you're supposed to retire. And it's, you haven't run any kind of analysis, and then all of a sudden you're back to work. But sometimes it's hard to get a job when you're 67. Right. And I know all you listening is that there's got to be some sort of anxiety of saying, man, am I on track, not on track? Um, you know, I freak out upon it, and I'm 40 years old. 
Right. It's like, well, 42. But yeah, let's be real. Okay. Almost 43. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Go ahead. What, what, what's the Number next Number two is too short of a time horizon, and this is common. Like if you're saving for retirement for 30 years, what the stock market does this year or next should not be a very big concern. Stop stressing about the headlines. Right. And even if you're 70, your, your life expectancy is 15, 20 years. Right. That's still a long Huge, time, right? right? <laughs> what the stock market does tomorrow doesn't really matter that much. Right. And if you die tomorrow, who cares anyway? <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah, that's a common misconception that people have. Is Like when they retire, Joe, Al, I need to get out of all my stocks because I can't afford the loss. Well, sure, you... None of us can afford losses, but you're actually guaranteeing a loss by being too safe because you're not going to keep up with inflation, and you're not going to have enough growth to fund the lifestyle that you want to have, and you're probably going to live longer than you thought. It's so, having the right strategy, the right portfolio for given what you're trying to accomplish. People have super high-octane portfolios that shouldn't, and people have very conservative portfolios that shouldn't. You just right. want to make sure that you have the right portfolio given your circumstance. This is related, uh, Joe. Too much attention given to the financial media. Because there, there's almost nothing on financial news shows that can help you achieve your goals. So the advice is turn them off, right? It just uh, it, it leads you astray. It, it, it preys into your emotions, and then you end up making the wrong decisions because you get scared. Right. Right? I mean, there's a ton going on right now. Venezuela. What do we got going on in North Korea? You got yeah, you know, France. Syria, yeah. France. Yeah, uh, There's a lot of headlines that it's pretty scary out there. Right. But it, guess what? It's always scary out there. And, and some people say, well, I've, I've got this guru. I, I give him $49 a year, and he, he's, he gives me all the... He or she gives me all the stock picks. Yeah, with that nice newsletter. It's like if they really had the secret secret sauce, sauce, they would be doing it themselves, not trying to sell you a $49 a year newsletter. Right. Yeah, so let's be realistic here. Another problem is people are not rebalancing. Uh, In other words, rebalancing is when you return your portfolio to its target asset allocation. So let's say you're supposed to, you've done your planning and you've figured out, I I need to have 60% in the market and 40% in safe assets. Well, the market tends to outperform safe assets over the long term, and the longer time goes off, you have a higher and higher allocation to riskier assets, which expose you much more to a market correction should it happen. And market corrections will happen. We just don't know when. Yeah, it's going to happen soon. I don't know. But this year, next year, following, I don't know. But then you have to take a look, and you got to stress test your portfolio and say, all right, well, how much risk am I really exposed here? I like the big returns, but you know, everyone hates a diversified portfolio because you're never going to have the highest return. But guess what? In a down market, you're not going to have the lowest return either. Yeah. So that's why diversification, again, and rebalancing towards your overall risk parameters is so key. Yeah, and that's even more important as you're approaching retirement because like, you, you really can't afford these gigantic losses. Here's another one, Joe, which is overconfidence in the ability of fund managers. And how many reports and how many studies do we have to have before we realize that index funds out, tend to outperform, on average, actual active fund managers? Yeah, I don't even think it's the, the overconfidence of fund managers. I think it's just individuals' overconfidence in themselves of either picking the right fund manager or the overconfidence of themselves of being able to pick the right investments. You know, it's not like, hey, I got this really good fund manager, because most people, when they buy a mutual fund, they're not looking at the fund manager. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, oh, well, I mean, there's only a few 
real well-known fund managers, and I would say only the industry actually knows their their names. Right, I think so too. Peter Lynch, who was arguably one of the best uh, traders uh, in probably the 1990s, maybe late 80s. 70s. 80s. 70s. He says there's no market timers in the Forbes 400. Right. In other words, the people that make the money—they're not time. They're not in and out. They're creating value, and they're sticking to. That's what Warren Buffett does. I mean, Warren Buffett does not get in and out of the market. Right. It's long-term investing. We all know that, but emotions get in our way sometimes, Joe. And of course, another one is related to that is not enough indexing because again, index funds—they're unmanaged funds, but um, they tend to beat the active managers. Not every year, but over the long term, the overwhelming evidence is that you'll do better with index funds than actively managed funds. Yeah, but it's all still based on the overall portfolio. I don't care if you have actively managed funds and I have an index fund. If I have an actively managed mutual fund portfolio, right, and you have an indexed portfolio, I still probably could beat your portfolio. It's based on the asset allocation. I agree with that. You know what I mean? Let's say if you have a pass, you, you have index funds because everyone loves index funds of ETFs. But well, you, got, you got the wrong ones. Well, you got the yeah. You're, let's say you're just in the S and P 500 or you're right, in stable right. value. Sure. Right. Well, I'm going to go. All right. Well, so you have S and P 500 in stable value. Well, I'm going to have a high or cost portfolio on my end. But I'm going to tilt my portfolio maybe a little bit more towards small value, merging markets, right? I mean, merging markets this quarter up to 13% a quarter. Right. Extremely volatile. But over the long term, it that volatility, that risk, you are compensated for. So I don't, you know, I'm, I'm so sick of the kind of the cost d- discussions. Yeah. Yes, you've got to control your costs and keep them low. But still, it's not the end all be all. You want to look at the right allocation for what you're trying to do. And if you like portfolio managers, by all means, do it. But just make sure that your allocation is appropriate to what you're trying to accomplish. And Joe, real quickly, the last one is chasing performance. And we see this all the time. So emerging markets did have a great quarter. So we're going to see money flooding into it. You got it. And Maybe it'll have another great quarter, but you tend when you're chasing the winners, they tend not to stay up on top. Last quarter and the fourth quarter, small value up what twenty some odd percent. Right, unheard of. First quarter, twenty seventeen down. Right, two percent. Right. So what do you think people did? Right. They now bought, they're selling now them they're, because oh these they, they, don't, they don't work. They, they used, don't work. They used, yeah. They well, yeah. Well, I guess the, it's, the, the run is over. It's a quarter. <laughs> Stop it. Stop it already. You heard Joe say this just a few minutes ago. You've got to stress test your portfolio and say, all right, well, how much risk am I really exposed here? Find out your risk number with our risk factor tool at yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Make sure your portfolio aligns with your investment goals and expectations. Identify how much risk is acceptable to you and compare it with the amount of risk you're currently taking in your portfolio. Together, we can take the guesswork out of your financial future. To find your risk number, just visit yourmoneyyourwealth.com. Rick Edelman, you know that guy, right? I sure do. He's got a new solution for Social Security, doesn't he? Well, yeah, what do you think about that? Let's talk about it a little bit here. Yeah, let me, let me pull it out. He wants to, he wants to allot $7,000 for each baby for the next 35 years and then have a, um, I don't know, some kind of congressional appointed investment board that would invest those dollars. And then by the time those kids got to retirement age, they would have the money to be able to fund Social Security. And he thinks that'll save a lot of money. It actually, it's 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 got some merit, I would say, based upon what I didn't run the numbers like Rick did, but I think it has some merit. Now, it doesn't do much for the current people, <laughs> so we have to wait 66, 67 years for this to actually 
take effect. Well, what he's saying is that, all right, well, you set aside $7,000 for each newborn baby for 35 years and invest the funds for the child's retirement. An investment board, like you said, would just make these investment decisions. And so after 35 years, the average value of the investment for each child would be $93,000. Right. Okay. Based on an annual 7.68% return, according to Mr. Edelman, by the time the child retires at 70, he or she would have $1 million or an average payout of $1,300, which matches the current Social Security benefit. So explain this to me. After 35 years, the average value of the investment for each child would be $93,000. Yeah, well, you put in a lump sum of seven. But based 30... on a 7% rate of return, by the time you reach 70, you'd be a million. Right. So, so what is it? 93 or a million? Yeah, the math doesn't work, does it? Well, I guess well, maybe it does, right? Because at 35, it's only 90, right? Because of the compounding. But then the, the bigger compounding comes in the last 35 years. I guess so. That yeah. $93,000 when you're a 35-year-old, you double it up yeah, again? Yeah, I think that works, actually. Yeah, it's probably right. But like I said, what do you do with the people that aren't babies? <laughs> you still have, like someone that's... From age one to a hundred, you still have to fix that part of it too. Yeah, but it doesn't really go into that. At the same monthly benefit, he said it would cost seven thousand dollars per worker instead of more than six hundred thousand per worker now collected through the Social Security taxes. Yeah, All so right. it's a it's a long term solution, and and the reason why this can work is because it's invested in. The market. Well, it, he's it's, it's, also assuming an almost an eight percent rate of return. I guess over seventy years. Yeah, it could be. But the, the the part of the problem with that is the market is it's only so big, right? And if you all of a sudden have governments investing with Social Security into the market, doesn't that's a flood of money over time into the market? I don't know. We'd have. To, <laughs> I'm not sure how that works. Right now, Social Security is is uh, it's invested in fixed income. Which, well, it's in treasuries. Yeah, exactly. So it doesn't have market return. But if you have all of a sudden billions and trillions of extra dollars to invest in the market, I'm not sure if there's enough stock in the world to cover that. But maybe I'm wrong. Haven't done the math, but I'm just I'm just throwing it out there. Huh. What do you think of that? Oh, I don't know. Wow. <laughs> we, should, we should put you on an economic committee of <laughs> some sort. Um. But yeah, it's. <clears throat> I, I like the idea though, and and I've I've often thought. Well, that... I mean, Bush wanted to privatize Social Security back, what in two thousand or whenever that was. He did, and and I think to, I I do think that has merit because if you're if the Social Security Administration is investing only in government T bills, it's we know that's a lot lower rate than than other areas of the market in terms of stocks and international stocks and things like that. So I, I do think there's some merit to it. We still would have to shore up the anyone that's more than one years old because this this fixes the in in about seventy years from now. But we got to get through the next seventy years too. Yeah, a few things will probably happen. I think the full retirement age will increase. I do too. Right? Yep. Well, they've done that before. They'll probably do it again. The full retirement age was sixty five. Now it's sixty seven, depending on what year you were born. Uh, they might push that out to age sixty eight or maybe seventy. Sixty nine, right. seventy. I, I think that's going to happen. I, I also think Medicare age is going to be pushed out here sure. at some point. Uh-huh. That's actually in worse shape than Social Security. But Rick also thinks that we're all going to live until like four hundred years old. I, I know he does. In fact, I just saw uh, a video that he did. He said retirement planners. Have 
have it all wrong because we're going to live decades more than you think. Well, I don't know. I I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to live a long, yeah. healthy life. You, you bet. Know? And and I do believe that we're healthier. And man, we know so much well, more about diet and exercise. Of course, you have to actually do it. Not everyone does it, but you can. I think when I was younger, I saw my grandmothers, both of them, they made it to 80. And at, at about 80, they, they just weren't the same. Sure. And now my parents are... 80, almost 85 and 83 and a half. And, and I wouldn't say they're spring chickens, but they're still independent. Right. Right. And they're still living their life. Yeah. I mean, yeah, your, your, your dad looks the same over the last 10 years. Yeah. He's, right? he, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's pretty good. I mean, it's, uh, although I will say at that age, you, you spend probably half your time going to doctors, <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is why, and I just saw this on Friday that, uh, it, interestingly enough, when you think about average life expectancy, so for a 65-year-old male, you know, it's it's maybe almost 20 years, maybe to 84, something like that, on the average, and sure. fe- females 87, 88, something like that. And uh, however, uh, if you uh, have more income and assets than the average person, you will likely take advantage of more medical services. And actually, the life expectancy of those that have more income and assets is is a fair amount higher still. You very likely, that where you've saved and have money and have, have potential income, you may likely be definitely on the other side of that average because of going to doctors and, and so forth. And that's, that's, that's been true for a while, but I think it's even more true now. There's, there's, there's bigger and bigger gaps now between the average and those that are in the, you know, kind of the upper income and asset levels. And it's mainly because of they're taking care of themselves, they're exercising, they're eating right, they're, they're, and they're going, they're using their doctors. I mean, they have the money, they have the money to right. get the best medical care. Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you have a couple million bucks in the bank versus a couple of bucks, you're going to get the best doctors yeah, and you're, 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 you're going to get the You're probably going to eat organic food and you don't have to get the bargain. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, so You're not going to get some whatever an apple in a bag that we get in our office. Have you ever had those apples in our office? No. It's the most disgusting thing I've ever seen in my life. They're, they're like cut apples. In, in a bag that's been in the refrigerator for a couple months and it's you could just taste the chemicals on it i'm like what because here's a little it our office i swear the the people in our office don't eat until there's something that is full of carbs that someone leaves that's true on our lunchroom table right right right. i mean so i'm like Catherine, let's get a little bit more healthy here sure right so she buys these apples in a bag. Well, she's trying to go for bulk. <laughs> this is not healthy. <laughs> My fingernails are green. <laughs> I'm losing hair. What the hell is going on? Well, it's, yeah. oh, it's the apples. It's the chemicals on these damn apples. Yeah, and we got those things in our freezer, the, the pocket, what are they called? Pocket I something. Know. I don't know. That, that take like 40 minutes to cook. Yeah, and then you, you, you just take one bite and you go, this isn't right. <laughs> you spit it out. <laughs> this isn't supposed to be consumed. Oh, yeah, it's but like, am I the, eating the oh, wrapper? Or the... <laughs> we have a $1,000 Costco bill daily, it seems like. I mean, there's truckloads of this crap getting are, into our office. We are feeding our staff. I'm not sure why. I don't know but... what is happening. It is disgusting. I, I do know that we have a we have a healthier bin of stuff and it, it's always full. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Healthy snacks. Well, nope, not even open. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's time to dip into the email bag with financial questions courtesy of Advisor Insights from Investopedia and you, the Your Money, Your Wealth listeners. Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your money questions. Email info at purefinancial.com or you can send your questions directly to joe.anderson at purefinancial.com or ellen.clopine at purefinancial.com. All right, here's your first question, Alan. Okay. I am 55 years old. I have $502,000 in my 401k. I have nothing in any other retirement program except Social Security. It is viable. Is it valuable or even worth it to stop contributing to my four hundred one k in diving into a Roth? Should I take the tax hit on the four hundred one k and roll some of it over to a Roth? I'm currently putting the annual max into my four hundred one k. Oh, I like it. So the max at age fifty five would be twenty four thousand dollars. So that's great, and doesn't really say how much longer he's going to work. But uh, we actually are big proponents. So I'm going to answer this generally. First of all, I guess we're big proponents of getting money into a Roth IRA. Now, of course, if you're subject to alternative minimum tax and some really high tax brackets, it may not be that great a thing. But if if you are in a tax bracket that is below the alternative minimum tax rate, and depending upon how much you're going to be spending in retirement, yeah. It may make a ton of sense to get some money to a Roth IRA, and maybe not all of it. Maybe you just start getting some of it. Maybe if you got a Roth option in your 401k, maybe you designate a quarter of it or a third or something. Get that started, right? And then, depending upon when you retire, like let's say you want to retire at age 62, now you've got some years that perhaps uh, you can do Roth conversions. Now, what's going to be tricky for you is you don't have assets outside of retirement, so you have nothing to live off of while you're doing it. So that makes it more difficult. And I will say for those of you that have money outside of retirement, uh, it's really it's great when you do retire because you can live off of those resources, be in a zero tax bracket and do Roth conversions in very low brackets and set yourself up well. So here's what my thought is and um, a couple of different keynotes here. If you're thinking about doing the Roth portion or Roth IRAs or conversions or whatever, you, first of all, you have to take a look at your tax bracket. Um, so get out your 1040. You probably just filed it, right? And look at line 43. That's the second page of your 1040, about halfway down. Take a look at what that number is. And then you want to go to the tax tables to see what tax bracket that you're in. Right? So if you're in the high tax brackets, 39.6 and you know 33 or alternative minimum tax is yeah. usually in the 28% bracket. Yeah, so then that, that, if you have something on line 44, that's alternative minimum tax, it's, that's a pretty high rate. That's a pretty high rate, yeah. yes. Yeah. So yeah, then you probably don't. The deduction is going to be a lot more valuable to you. Uh, but here's why we're big fans of Roth, is that you will then be able to have diversity, diversification when it comes time to take distributions from your accounts. Because let's say he's already got $500,000. He's got a half a million at age 55. He works another 10 years. At 50, and let's say he gets a 6% growth rate, 7% growth rate over 10 years. That's going to double. That's a million bucks. Right. Now he's still fully funding it with $24,000. Right for ten years. So that's, that's another two hundred forty thousand dollars of contributions plus growth on that. That's Double right. that. That's another five one point five million roughly. Could be. That's okay. right. Agreed. So then you got one point five million dollars, all taxable income at retirement. One point five is great, but here's what we would tell you: you don't have one point five million. You have nowhere near that because every dollar that comes out of there has to pay ordinary income tax. Now think of it like this: say, all right, well maybe I switch my strategy a little bit and get money into a tax-free environment. I do take the tax hit today, but then all of those contributions that grow for me, I will never pay tax on those dollars again. 
So now I'm 65 or 70 whenever I decide to retire. And now I have a little bit of money in a Roth IRA. So when I take distributions from that, it's tax-free. Then I got a chunk, you know, a big chunk in my retirement accounts where every dollar is going to be taxed at ordinary incomes. Then I got my Social Security. But then you could be a little bit more sophisticated on your retirement income strategy by meaning what I mean by that is that you look at your tax bracket, right? Or say, what are your deductions, exclusions, exemptions? And then you say, here's how much money I want to take out of my 401k plan. And I'm going to stop, let's say, at the 15% tax bracket. I'm going to fill up the 10% bracket. I'm going to fill up the 15% tax bracket. And then it's like, all right, well, here, I still want more cash flow. Well, guess what? You have money in a Roth. You start pulling money from your Roth IRA to cover your whatever additional income gap that you have. All of that is tax-free. So potentially, you could be living in a 25 or 28% bracket, but you're only paying 15% because half of it's coming to you tax-free because you've done the planning ahead of time to make sure that you get money into a Roth. Yeah, I think that's right, Joe. Now, of course, there's there's examples where you're in a 28% bracket now, and you're going to be in a 15% bracket later, no matter what you do, then maybe it's not the best plan for you. And then other things that can happen is maybe you don't have any assets outside of retirement, but maybe you might inherit some money, right, that you could use, right? And so you get tax diversification that way, or maybe you're planning on downsizing or moving to a different area. So there, there's lots of ways to look at this. But I think the key point here is we're big believers in tax diversification in retirement because if all of your assets are in your 401k, every time you pull that dollar out, you have to pay tax on it. And if you have certain years where you want to pull extra out, it jumps you up into higher brackets still. Here's the argument against the Roth. And it's a valid argument, but I think it's flawed in (laughs) some degree. All right. Is that if, if you look at it like this to say, all right, well, if I take the tax deduction today and I have it grow tax deferred, right? And then I pay taxes on it. It's kind of the same thing. You break even. I mean, it's it, it it has the same effect if you're in the same tax bracket, right? If I'm in the 25% tax bracket today, I'll be in the 25% tax bracket in the future. The, the pundits will say it makes no difference if it's Roth or traditional and probably go traditional because we don't know what they're going to do with the law. Have you heard that argument? Yes, you bet. Right? Explain the math on that. What are they saying there? Well, they're they're saying that that if you if once you look at the 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 tax benefit of like a regular four hundred one k versus the non benefit of the Roth. Now, the tax benefit of the regular four hundred one k, you've got more money essentially in that account, so it grows more. So you think you're doing better than the money in the Roth IRA, but yet when you pull the money out, it's fully taxable. And if it's the same rate, the math actually works out exactly the same, uh, in, whether you put it in one or the other. And that's that I probably didn't explain it well, but well, that's, no, because I think what you're saying, if if I'm in that, let's say if I put ten thousand dollars in, if I put t- if if I'm in the 25% tax bracket, I'm not really putting $10,000 in, right? Because I get a $2,500 tax deduction by True. putting the $10,000 in. Yep. Right? So what is, that's $7,500 that I'm putting into the plan. Right. Versus if I put $10,000 into the Roth, I'm putting a full $10,000 into the Roth. Right. So I'm only putting $7,500 into the 401k plan traditional. I'm putting the full $10,000 into the Roth plan. That's the argument. Then this $10,000 grows to $20,000. Okay. Then the $7,500 right, grows to X. Well, you pull it out, you pay tax, right? but it's kind of the same wash if you're in the same tax bracket. That's right. 
But here's the problem with that. There's real life. That's mathematics. What's the problem with that theory? Well, the, the problem is, first of all, tax brackets can change. Okay. They can go up. If you're married and one spouse passes, now you're a single taxpayer. So now you're going to be in higher tax brackets. Uh, if you should have a year where you need to pull out more money for any reason, you, you jack yourself up into yet a higher bracket. There's required minimum distributions. There's no required minimum distributions in a Roth. And this also is assuming that you're saving the tax deduction. That's true, too. Right. You're not which which saving, most people don't. You're not saving the tax right. deduction. Right. Are you ready for our next question? Yeah, let's have it. Will my... Let's see. All right. I, if I begin taking Social Security at age 63 okay. and continue to work and earn over the max allowed, does my reduced payment become permanent even after I reach full retirement age? That's a great question. I think there's a lot of confusion there. And I, I think the, the rule, Joe, is that if you are taking Social Security benefits uh, before full retirement age, with, which this year is 66 years and two months, right, then there is a certain dollar amount that you can earn. It's like 16720 something like that, right, except for that last year. I guess the year that you turned 62, 66, and, two, and then it's 40,000 some. But at any rate, so if you make more than that, you have to give back some of your benefits. And I think the question is, is that a permanent loss? Will I ever get that money back? And the answer is no, it's not a permanent loss because they basically refigure it as if you didn't receive that benefit so that when you do reach full retirement age, you will. it's as if you, you, know, you, you, you didn't receive the benefit. So it's not a permanent haircut. So let's just assume that the the, the limit's $15,000 just to make this easy. Okay. Right? It's 16000 and some change. And what we mean by that is if you take your Social Security benefit prior to full retirement age and you are still working, you have self-employment or W-2 wages, they will reduce your Social Security benefit based on the amount of money that you make if it's over that limit. It's 16000 some change. I'm just going to use 15000 as an example. Okay. So 15000 is the number. You make $30,000 a year. Okay? Okay. So you're $15,000 over the limit. Right. So what they do is they say, well, every $2 earned over that limit, they're going to take a dollar back. Okay. All right. So if I take 15,000 divide that by 2, what is that That's answer? 7500. 7500 bucks. So let's say that your social security benefit is $10,000 per year. So you take it early at 63, you're enjoying your $10,000 a year um, payment. But wait a minute, you made 30,000, which is $15,000 over the maximum threshold. So they'll take every $2 you earn, they take a buck back over that. So that's 15,000 divided by 2 is 7,500. So they're going to take $7,500 back out of the $10,000 that you earned. So your benefit is over only $2,500. That is not a permanent reduction. Because if I look at that, 75% of the year, they're going to assume that you didn't take that benefit at all. Right? So over the next four years, if you continue to do that, right? So then they'll say, well, you didn't really take it at age 62. You took it at age 65. Right? Because 25 and four, that's one year. They'll say, no, you only took it one year early. 
Does that make sense? Uh, it does. And, and so basically we're saying that you basically took a quarter of your benefit and over the four years that adds up to a year. So it's like it's it's if you started taking it at 65 instead of 62 or right. 63. So your, per, your haircut, your permanent haircut, if you took it early at 62, it's about 25%. It's a permanent haircut. It's it's 23 and whatever change, but <laughs> I'm going to keep with 25%. Yeah, it's close enough. Okay. So if you take it at 62, 25% permanent haircut, but now you're still working, right? So he's over that threshold is what he's asking us. And so because he's over that threshold, they're going to say, well, no, given that math, you didn't really take it at 62. You took it at 65. And so your haircut is going to be not 25%, but yeah. 6%. 6% or, or something yeah, like six that. Yeah, 6.5 or if, if I Yeah, it actually, right. it actually works out now where your haircut's about 26% because now it's 66 years and two months and all the way back to 62. It's even a little bit more of a haircut to take it early. I guess is the way to say it. But oh, I went the other way. You did go the other way, but that, that's okay. That's why. Uh, so here's, big brain here's, a, big here's another point for you, and that Most is people this. People uh, what an idiot. No, they're not. There's, <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> they say that about both of us all the time. And we're, that's okay. we got thick skin. No worries. You can say what you want. But yeah. I wanted to say, so that's 16720 is the amount that you can earn, actually 16920 I stand corrected, I just got the cheat sheet right in front of me. So you can, you can make below that and not have any sort of change on your Social Security benefit when you're younger than full retirement age, 66 and two months. But that's only earned income, and people get confused. It's not unearned income, which is interest and dividends and capital gains and rental income and pensions. Pensions, 401k. Right, none of that counts, okay? So this is only if you're still working in a job or if you've got a, a business that it, with the profits are subject to self-employment tax. So that's earned income. So you could be making a couple hundred thousand dollars from your investments or pension or whatever and still get full Social Security without a haircut if you don't have more than $16,920 of earned income. Right. So if you're going to continue to work, well, then you have to identify, well, how much am I going to make this year? for me to make it worthwhile, should I claim or not? Right. And I think a lot of times people don't understand that, yeah, you can claim it at 62, and yes, you get a permanent haircut of 25%-ish. Yes. <laughs> but if you're still working, they're going to take every $2 that you earn, they're going to take a buck back over that $16,920 maximum limit. So if you are working in your full-time and you're making more than $16,000, it doesn't make any sense to take the benefit. And here's another thing that they'll do is that, all right, you take your benefit, and then you, you work that year, and then you make $100,000. Well, that's well over $16,920, so they're going to take everything back, right? And so you're like, the next year... You fully retire the next year. Now you're 63 and you're waiting for that Social Security benefit. Are you going to get a check? No. No. Not until it gets paid back. Not until it gets paid back. <laughs> Not until it gets paid back. So you want to make sure that you communicate with the Social Security Administration to say, all right, well, here, I'm working. I made this. Right, So you're not going to collect that benefit because when you need it the following year, because now you have zero income because you spent it, <laughs> and then the next year you need it, and right. it's not going to be there because you've got to pay it back because 
they don't want you to double dip. And then you're asking for your old job back. Yeah. Right. Hey. That big retirement party. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I actually really need to work, and I, I actually do like this job. The stuff that I said before I left right. didn't mean it. Yeah. 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 I, this when is... you're hammered at the <laughs> going away party, don't give everyone F-bombs. Uh, yeah. And that's it for us today. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. Want to wish uh, my good buddy... A very happy birthday. He turned uh, the big six. <laughs> I did, didn't I? Yes, you did, my friend. You don't look a day older than 59. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, that's it. If you want to wish Big Al a happy birthday, you know where to find him. Purefinancial.com. Email him at alan.clopine.com. He loves to get your emails. Well, alan.clopine at purefinancial.com. Oh, well, I don't have my own you. website. You don't have one. <laughs> no, that's happy birthday, brother. <laughs> All right. For Big Al Clopine, I'm Joe Anderson. Uh, We'll see you guys next week. You listen to Your Money, Your Wealth. So to recap today's show, the biggest tax cut ever is in the works. Rick Edelman wants to set aside $7,000 for newborns to be invested for their Social Security. And you shouldn't pay too much attention to the financial media, except for Your Money, Your Wealth. Special thanks to Dr. Daniel Crosby, psychologist and author of The Laws of Wealth, who taught us that fear exists in a physical place in our head that can never be eradicated. So making investing decisions with a financial planner is a good idea. Subscribe to the podcast at yourmoneyyourwealth.com through your favorite podcatcher or on iTunes, where you can also check out our ratings and reviews. And remember, this show is about you. If there's something you'd like to hear on Your Money, Your Wealth, just email info at purefinancial.com. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors. For your free financial assessment, visit purefinancial.com. Pure Financial Advisors is a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song Motown Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license. 